We'll turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. I've titled this message, How to Rejoice in Suffering. How to Rejoice in Suffering. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9. And I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word as we just give reverence to Him and a special attention to His voice in it. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your true and living word that is able to penetrate to our inmost being, to reveal the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, to reveal to us your heart for us, what is true and what is powerful and what is life-giving to us. And you know what it is we need to hear and we open with the expectation that that's what you have to say to us today. And so as we open our ears and hearts, we ask, as always, you would speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument for your good purposes today? In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you've been with us uh, in this series, well, of course, we've just begun. I guess we're three weeks in here. But in the previous verses, you may remember that it said, Peter said, God has caused you to be born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that there is a salvation that awaits us to be revealed in the last time. But we rejoice now in this. As, he, as we open up verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. That is the this. <laughs> the, the, our living hope and our secure inheritance that we have for all of eternity awaiting us. All those who are believers in Jesus. And so... We rejoice even though now, for a little while, you suffer various trials, he says, not only to the people receiving and reading this immediately, but to every believer down through the ages. Rejoice in suffering. I, this is one of those topics, I'm certainly not hesitant to preach it, but there is something about it that gives me a gut check because I realize I have to be taught this message as much as I am qualified to teach it, that we are all 
uh, in need of learning how to rejoice in suffering. And frankly, none of us really wants to learn that. We just want to know it, right? There, as I've said before, there are some things, and uh, remember there were seasons in life where I said, you know, there's a lot of things I'd like to know. There just aren't many I would like to learn. Because you know, learning is the hard part, and this would be one of those. Learning how to rejoice in suffering and developing um, all of the the, the, the fruit that comes from that learning, becoming all that God uh, makes of us and forms into us through that learning process. That is good stuff. We do desire that. The process itself is painful. And as I said, I, um, I, I know I need to learn it as much as Anybody needs to learn it, and so it's not as if I am qualified to say to you, let me tell you from my experience how to rejoice in suffering. I will simply tell you, try to explain what the Word of God says to us in that respect and, and press that into our hearts. But I did think about the fact how sort of providential it was, fortuitous it was, that at our presbytery meetings, where several of us were for the last couple of days, that is, for those of us, for those of you who are new, uh, Presbytery is sort of a, uh, a council of elders, but it's a family of churches um, in our evangelical Presbyterian community. So there are about 30 or so in the coastal mid-Atlantic area. And uh, we, we gathered together over the last couple of days, and on Friday night at our worship service, uh, the sermon was delivered by Andrew Brunson. Many of you know that name. Uh, many who have been here for some time uh, know that we prayed for him as our denomination did and many Christians all around the world did for a number of years. But Andrew, for those who don't know his story, he was a missionary pastor in Turkey for 23 years. And in 2016, he was arrested and falsely accused of terrorism. Actually, he and his wife were arrested. She was released after two weeks. He was held for two years without trial. And it was quite an international incident and quite a rallying cry to the body of Christ around him for prayer. But he was held in prison for two years. And at the end of that two years, he was convicted and then quickly, abruptly released and escorted out of the country. Uh, and I should mention, um, partly, maybe largely, because of uh, the work of uh, some of the U.S. government, Mike Pompeo and others even involved in that negotiation process um, that got him out of that situation. But part of his testimony for which I'm very grateful, by the way. Part of his testimony is that he was not strong in that hour like he expected to be. He knew being a missionary in the Muslim world in particular, but really being a missionary in lots of parts of the world, that persecution was a possibility, that imprisonment was a possibility, that torture, death, I mean, any number of things could come their way, and they, they uh, in their vows sort of state, assert their, their willing 
to embrace that if that is God's lot for them. So he knew that was a possibility, but when the hour came, he was not as strong as he expected to be. In fact, he would describe himself as, as having been quite weak, and he's not at all ashamed about telling that for the good of the church because he knows his journey was a very difficult one. He learned how to rejoice in suffering. And the story was he didn't succeed at that right off the bat. In fact, what he would say is more or less for the first year in prison, he was broken. And it was the second year in prison over a slow process that God really rebuilt him. And now, of course, he has uh, uh, sort of new ministry opportunities um, growing out of that. But I'm not going to preach his testimony this morning. I did think it was particularly timely, knowing this was already scheduled to be our text this morning. Um, and again, that he would be one qualified to say he could talk about how to rejoice in suffering because his testimony is when that hour first came, he did not rejoice. He said, God, why me? God, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. Use somebody else. And all of that kind of things that may, maybe some of us have said uh, in much lesser circumstances, right? Lesser difficulties. We have felt some of those same kind of things, but certainly I think many of us could relate to. But, but again, among the things that he learned uh, is how to rejoice in suffering. And so I want to look at what Peter says to us about that. Uh, because what, interestingly enough, one of the things that Peter would share in common with Andrew Brunson <laughs> is his first opportunity to stand strong in the face of persecution. He didn't do so well either. He thought he was pretty uh, bold himself, right? And he shot off at the mouth a lot. But when the real intense point of the spear was pointed at him in that dark hour, he crumbled. And of course, Jesus restored him too. And so Peter speaks to us, this out of a place of real experience and humility of how to rejoice in suffering. And I want to look at really five uh, principles or, or sort of points of instruction perhaps that we can take from these few verses here that we just read. Number one, accept that trials are necessary. I don't know if you picked up on that word as we read now. For a little while, if necessary, you uh, suffer various trials. Trials are not a curse to the Christian. Trials are not a spiritual birth defect for a Christian. It's not like a growth on your spiritual skin that isn't supposed to be there. And it certainly isn't by any stretch of the imagination, a sign of weakness. It isn't a sign of God's disfavor or disapproval. Some of this you've heard me say before. Trials are necessary in the sense 
that they are very ordinary instruments that God uses to shape us. Do you know that God accepts you exactly how you are, but he does not intend to leave you exactly how you are? The first part of that message, I would just want to pause and underscore for anybody here today who hasn't ever for the first time decidedly, definitively said yes to Jesus. I want to follow him. I want him in my life. I want to surrender my life to him. He accepts you right where you are. All the warts and all. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to him. He accepts you right as you are. But he does not intend to leave us as we are. Having been saved from the penalty of sin is not the end of the story. What the Bible describes is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved, ultimately, from the very presence of sin. It is a process that ends in our glorification, where the work is finished in us, or we are like Jesus, share in His glory, And it is a process by which God forms us into his likeness. And trials are the very ordinary instrument that God uses to shape us. They are necessary. Now, of course, God is omnipotent. He could do it without trials. It's not that it's necessary to him, but necessary in the sense that that is just the ordinary instrument God uses. Hard times are what drive us to seek refuge in the Lord, to search for answers and wisdom in His Word, and uh, the, the occasions in which we grow the most spiritually. It's the hard times. It's the really reaching for the Lord, the really crying out to the Lord. Those are the times of greatest growth. I heard Paul Tripp uh, in a short video clip of an interview um, this past week. He, he, you, some of you know the name, just a, a Christian counselor uh, who has just a lot of wisdom to offer, but he says, no one says, no one ever says, I've just had the three easiest years of my life, and I have learned so much and grown so much. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way, right? It never happens that way. And he goes on to say, hardship in the hands of the Redeemer is the workshop of His grace. Hardship in the hands of the Redeemer is the workshop of His grace. And He intends to do work on you and me. I thought about in uh, our trip to Italy last summer, we took a train past the town of uh, uh, Massa, I think it is. But you, you can look up in the distance and see what looks like snow-capped mountains. But it's actually marble. Uh, and it was the, the, the place where Michelangelo's marble was uh, mined from. And it's beautiful in the distance on the top of mountains. And you can see where some of it has been cut off and it's there by the uh, you know, just in town, where, wherever it's being sorted and distributed and that kind of thing. It's beautiful just naturally, but it is much more beautiful after Michelangelo got a hold of it. <laughs> it 
And so God saves us, accepts us as the raw material, but he intends to do a very beautiful work in us and what he's going to make us into. And it is hardship and trials that he uses to do so. So accept, number one, that trials are necessary. Number two, expect a variety of trials. Then he says right there that, you, you know, you've uh, suffered a, um, I'm, I'm trying to look at how it says in the ESV, you've been grieved by various trials. This is, again, a word that just suggests it's all manner, all kinds of them. Aren't you just thankful? Aren't you just, well, thank you, Lord, for variety, you know? Baskin-Robbins, 33 flavors of trials. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to just, just get used to one of them. But he uses trials like a carpenter uses uh, various wood planes. I don't know if you've ever uh, noticed that. Somebody who works with wood and has a whole selection of wood planes, or like a sculptor might have chisels, a whole variety of chisels to use. There's, there's all, a whole variety of different tools that God uses to shape us in the ways that he desires to shape us. You know that there are certain tools that can reach certain places, right? Whether you're cleaning the house, you know there's only a certain brush that'll get in that spot. You know there are certain cleaners you need to clean certain kinds of stains out, etc., etc., etc. There are just specific tools or instruments you need to do certain kinds of work in certain spots. And so God uses various trials to shape us in various ways. There are small trials and big trials, those we brought on ourselves or those that have just been inflicted upon us for no just reason. There are those that are circumstantial, those, there are the, those that are very personal and relational. Betrayal. Abandonment. Deep disappointment from people toward us or in people because of ways that they've hurt us. There are ones that afflict the body, ones that afflict the mind and emotions, all kinds of various trials, and God uses them in various ways, as Michelangelo would use various chisels and tools to make a beautiful work. Expect a variety of trials. Number three, be honest about the grief. Be honest about the grief. He says there again in verse 6 that you have been grieved by various trials. I am personally just thankful that that word is in there. Rejoice. In this you rejoice even though you've been grieved by various trials. Be honest about the grief. Look, hard stuff is hard. Bad stuff is actually bad. We don't have to pretend like it's not because somehow good Christians don't, or good Christians don't experience it that way. I should put good Christians in quotes, right? Because sometimes that's the feeling that uh, in an effort to be a good Christian who rejoices in suffering, we may be tempted just to try to put on a happy face, and act like the grief isn't real. We might just try to 
uh, stuff it down, swallow the grief, deny it's there. None of that is good, and rejoicing in suffering doesn't require that we deny the grief. It's unhealthy for us, too. It's not the way God even designed it to. As always, we can get great help from the Psalms and the psalmists if we grieve the way that they grieved. Because they're real raw about doing it. And crying out about the grief and crying out and declaring their trust in the Lord. But be honest about the grief. You can be real. You can shed real tears. You can be truly, sincerely sorrowful that that bad thing has happened that you wish hadn't happened, that you wish would go away. Be, be honest about the grief. And yet, number four, continue to trust in God. This sounds real. This, this sounds uh, almost cliche. It's so simple not easy, but it's so simple it almost goes without saying. But he says in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. What's called for in us is that we continue to believe. Our faith is tested by trials, and so the call upon us is to continue to walk by faith, to continue to trust God. Don't stop believing. Uh, for many of you, in my generation or younger, that reminds you of a song that is now in your head, which I did on purpose. Um, and again, as simple as, simple as that sounds, it's actually, it's actually incredibly profound because sometimes this is just the action required. Don't stop believing. Keep trusting God. Just keep believing God. Even when yesterday you quit believing God, even when yesterday you said, I give up, pick somebody else. Today, trust God. Faith is tested by trials in the sense that uh, it's proved to be genuine. He uses it in that sense here where he talks about, you know, um, more precious than gold, which is, uh, you know, tested by fire. That, that the counterfeits burn away under, under those kinds of refining fire sort of tests. The pure stuff remains. That's kind of the analogy that's used there. And so trials test our faith to prove that they're real. God knows you're going to pass the test. If you have genuine faith in Christ... He's not concerned you're going to fail. He's not asking any trick questions on the test. But the, but the trial proves our faith, and yet the heat has to be raised to a certain temperature. And it has to be sustained for a certain length of time for the fire to do its work, its refining work. 
the end result is good, the heat is hot. And it just is. But faith is also strengthened. It's tested, but it's also strengthened through trials because it's exercised just like muscles are exercised. Muscles are strengthened by using them. Again, speaking of things, I'm not really, I'm not sharing from personal experience, but just what I've, uh, I've I might share from past experience, right? Not recent experience, but, uh, you know, muscles are strengthened by using them, not by resting. And faith is the same way. Muscle is built by pushing against heaviness or pushing against resistance pushing so hard and for so long or so many times that the muscle actually breaks down. So somebody lifting weights and really being serious about working out may have somebody that spots them, right? You, some of you have done it. Others of you have seen it in movies or seen it at the gym or something where somebody's there when it gets with that, that last rep, can't quite lift, and somebody's there to help. What happens then, the muscle Fibers are damaged in the process, and in the periods of rest, those, those muscle fibers are actually rebuilt and strengthened. And that's how muscle actually grows, is by being worked to the point of near exhaustion, broken down, and then rebuilt. It's really a great analogy for faith because faith has to be exercised. And it's exercised in the context of hardship. It's exercised when you push against resistance. There is obviously benefit to the growth of our faith just from our ordinary quiet times, our times in the Word and in prayer. Those are instrumental. But the real Growth, the application of that that really grows us is in the context of hardship. And so we just continue trusting God. There are times when, when we might need to say, I trust you, Lord. I think about the psalm. Uh, there are, again, a number of places that would give you language to pray this way. Psalm 31, 12 through 15. He says, I've been forgotten like the one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel or broken pottery. For I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. That is a decision on the part of the psalmist to say, but I trust in you. And there are many times where you and I have to make that decision to say it. And, and it, is, it is as distasteful sometimes. Let's be honest about this as well. Just like being honest about the grief, let's be honest about the realities of this, of walking this out sometimes. It, it, is, it is so distasteful and undesirable to utter those words sometimes as it was when you were a child and your mom said, eat your green beans or your broccoli. There's nothing in you that wants to put that in your mouth. And there are times when, when what's 
it right in deep inside of you, you do not want to say it is not really in keeping with the real desires of what's driving you at that moment to say, I trust you, Lord. And even then, even then, we need to say, I trust you, Lord. Or maybe tomorrow, when we wake up and it's a new day, we just say, I trust you, Lord. Continue to trust the Lord. And finally, number five, cultivate your love for Jesus. Verse eight speaks to this, the, the love of Jesus is at root of this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. I love that phrase. I love that sentence because he's even again in the, in the first century, he's writing to people who didn't know Jesus personally. But though, you, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Our love for Jesus is what produces this inexpressible, overflowing joy. And so we want to nurture that relationship with Jesus that continues to make him real to you. That continues to make him real to you. Again, if you, if you walk with the Lord long enough, part of your testimony will include that maybe when you first came to faith in him, there was this sweet honeymoon, mountaintop sort of experience, and then at some point along the way, it wasn't all sweet and it wasn't a honeymoon anymore. And that there are probably ups and downs of that sort of thing. Times where God seems really present and times where he seems really distant. And so this is sort of what I'm trying to touch on when I say uh, keeping him, making him real to you in, in, in that sense. That it's important to labor for that a love for him that reminds us deep in our soul he is my lord and he's nourishment for my soul and he's enough he is what sustains the the, the importance of this is because our instinct is not in those in those hours of trial to to nurture a love for Jesus, it's to attack the trial, right? Go after the problem and make it go away. By the way, that's not altogether bad. As a matter of fact, it's part of the process too. Learning how to cry out to God about that affliction. Learning to go to the Scriptures and say, what does God say is true about this condition that I'm facing, the circumstances that I'm lying under or whatever. That's part of that, that process of, of struggling through trials is the crying out to God and go, going on attack against the problem itself. But that's not all the battle, and I'd suggest maybe not even the most important part of it. What's really most important is that we nurture a love for Jesus. I don't know 
what's going on. This may be, be our story uh, at any given moment. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this is happening. I don't see any end in sight to it. But I know that Jesus lives and he lives in me and that he loves me and, and that that's enough. And out of that, and out of that flows joy inexpressible and filled with glory. That's joy that doesn't make sense. And it can't be manufactured, and it is not substituted by a happy face and, 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 and Sunday school words. And y'all know what I'm talking about, I think, if you've been around a while in, just in church and in Sunday school. Right? We know how to use the right words. We know how to put on the right sort of projection. It's no substitute for a real deep love that overflows in joy. And I'll conclude just by pointing us to verse 9 that says the end result of that is obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Obtaining our final salvation. Again, this is to be understood in light of the fact that salvation is this process and it's lifelong and that it culminates in God finishing His work in us. That we're no longer a mass of marble. We are a beautiful sculpture that he's formed us into. It's a, that point when his work is finished will be made like Jesus in all the ways he intends us to be and will share in his glory. The Bible speaks of that, calls that glorification. And one of the things that Andrew Brunson shared that to me I thought was helpful, I don't remember exactly the words he put it in, uh, but it's, Essentially, look at your present circumstances and trials and understand them in light of the next million years with the Lord. Right? It's not that, it's not that eternity is really measured in years, but, but we, it, that's helpful to me in, in trying to put that in context that we can understand. When the Bible speaks of light and momentary afflictions, one of the things Andrew said, hey, it doesn't feel light, doesn't feel momentary, Lord. Uh, he reads, my grace is sufficient. Andrew says, I, doesn't, I don't think so. Doesn't feel sufficient to me. But one of the things he came to understand is those afflictions were light and momentary in light of the next million years of living life as a finished work <laughs> of His handiwork in, a, in a, uh, just a, a constant place of joy, peace, rest, love, health and strength and energy and all of those other things that may define fullness of life and shalom. We have an eternity to experience them. And that is what we keep our eyes fixed on. And that gives us reason to rejoice. Well, let's pray.
Father, we do acknowledge the difficulty of this topic, particularly the difficulty in just actually walking it out when the time comes. And because of that, the truth is, Lord, we usually don't want those times to come. We don't go seeking trials, and we don't ask for them. But Father, we do pray that you would change our perspective on them. That we might get a vision of heaven, of Jesus, and really even of us dwelling there with your work complete in us. Lord, would you give us a vision for that end that we might more readily rejoice when the hour comes for our workout, for our faith to be exercised to the point of exhaustion, for this time for us to enter into your workshop of grace where you are going to use various instruments to refine us in ways that make us more beautiful and more fit for our eternity. Lord, would you give us a perspective on that that would prepare us better to rejoice in our hour of suffering and trial. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.